Today, we are talking to Peter Cooper, the founder of Cooper Press, and we discuss how he went from a simple blog to the largest developer publication on Earth, how Microsoft is creating developer content to dominate the next generation, and how every company must generate content from day one. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Who's playing that? Is that you? That's not me. Alexa, pause. Google. Okay, Google. Stop. Dude, Google just hijacked our Alexa call. Oh, man. Never has that <laughs> happened before. That's the problem with these speech interfaces. They can all hear each other. Yeah, and they're going to start competing to like who can answer the question first. Right? Like I'm talking to Alexa. Google jumps in and tries to do its thing. I saw a dude who uh, set a reminder on his Alexa um to give him a one second reminder that was something along the lines of Alexa set a reminder for one second and it kind of just went in a loop so it just kept setting itself a reminder one second each time um yeah it was a nightmare oh because you couldn't interrupt her to stop it no exactly so you know it, w- it would set itself a reminder by saying its own name it was uh yeah kind of inception Ooh, it was there a video of this yeah, there's videos on YouTube of people screwing around doing this kind of stuff everywhere. It's, uh, yeah, scary stuff. I can never seem to get it to work, but I don't know. Mine is very, my Alexa is quite obstructive to me, I find. Do you have problems with the voice or is it pretty good? Yeah, sometimes you have to just be really, really clear with what you're saying. But, uh, you know, I guess it's uh, probably got, it's been trained a bit more on American accents. So that might be part of the issue. Yeah, it's just a matter of data and time. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, eventually it will be, you know, it'll it'll know what you want before you even say it. I follow this guy, Dave, on LinkedIn, and he's the like chief evangelist for Alexa Voice. Right. And they just posted some pictures the other day of uh, Australia getting their first shipments of the <laughs> Alexa. Yeah, man. They're going to have to get used to uh, the C word over there. <laughs> they use it in every sentence. Oh, no, do they? I don't know about this. Oh, seriously. It's like a, it's like a term of like, you know, friendship over there. So it's just, it's like a casual word. Yeah, they just drop it in everywhere. And, uh, you know, so Alexa can't be getting all um, offended at that. That'd be cool, though, if we could see some sort of personality levels of Alexa, like how, like what her current state of offense is or. <laughs> I would totally choose Alexa to be Australian. Um, so we used to have like, you know, 10 years ago, the whole car navigation, Tom Tom thing. And having the Australian voice was just so much better. It's just so chill. It's like, yeah, mate, I'll do that. I'll turn left. It's like, <laughs> it's just so like relaxed and chilled out about everything that's what i would choose have you been to australia no i've not you did a great accent just there yeah well you know we, we have a lot of australians come over here teach us their ways so um yeah we have we have a good relationship was the nutella thing real i saw that in the news people are getting like trampled from nutella yeah that's like a french thing that happened in france but um yeah i don't really know they're they're a bit weird over there what's the australia vegemite that's oh, vegemite yeah so we have marmite which is very similar Although Australians would disagree with that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a similar thing. I'm real excited that you came on the show. Yeah, it was uh, interesting to run into you on Twitter, so I'm looking forward to it as well. We actually have a crowd outside our studio. We had to hire security and everything. <laughs> <laughs> There's Lovely. people holding Peter Cooper signs out and everything. Man, it sounds like you've done this before. What? <laughs> uh, I, I want to know. I got questions for you. Is that Go. cool? Yeah. All right. 
I, I want to know what the first piece of code that you wrote was. Uh, probably 10 print hello world 20 go to 10. Yeah. Line numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what system was that? It probably would have been on a Commodore Vic 20, which was the precursor to the Commodore 64 that everyone is more familiar with. Commodore Vic 20. I got to look that thing up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Vic 20 was kind of like the precursor to the, the 64, but um, I don't think it was super popular because whenever I mention it, people are like, oh, I've not heard of that one. But uh, if you're around in the early 80s, it's, you know, they were around. You can pick one up for $125 on eBay. Oh, there you go. It, it probably only cost $125 when it came out in like <laughs> 1981 or whatever. I've been on your, your Ruby email letter for like ever. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I super enjoy that. I want to know what it's like over at Cooper Press, like how, how it operates. Is it just you? Do you have a team? I'm curious. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd like to say it's just me barking orders at everyone and everyone does <laughs> what, they, what I say, but uh, no, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, you know, yeah, so there's like about eight of us. Uh, we have a bunch of external curators as well who, you know, don't have to put up with the office atmosphere. But uh, yeah, those of us who are here, essentially, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of nice. Like everyone's got their own little thing that they're getting on with and doing. And I just kind of rely on them to uh, keep up the pace and, you know, kind of keep me, like keep my feet firmly planted on the ground and actually getting on with stuff. Because I'm one of these people that is very attracted to flights of fancy and side projects and all this type of thing. So, um, so you're a creative? Uh, kind of like, you know, I, I'm not like a particularly artistic person, but in terms of, you know, messing around with business and side up projects and stuff like that, then yeah, I kind of just get carried away. I'm definitely one of those people that would categorize themselves as being a starter rather than a finisher um, when it comes to ideas. So having like eight people, you know, that are depending upon you helps instill some of that discipline. I'm like in the same boat as you. So I just supplement that with hiring a very effective team around me. Right. That way I can do these constant starts and we can pick the best ones and see them through. Exactly. You know, once you've got enough of a system, you can let someone else run with a part of it, uh, depending on, you know, how happy you are to hand things off to other people. It's something I've really had to work on for, you know, a good few years now. But so once you're happy with doing that, if you've got a system, it can work really well. So, you know, we've done that with uh, Twitter accounts is a good example of that. Um, You can hand one off to someone if they know what they're doing. And uh, yeah, it's kind of fun just seeing things take on their own life. Yeah, we're actually doing that today. We have a new hire in the office. Uh, Jackie, and she's going to be replicating what I was doing with posting the clips from the show. So we clip little ah. two-minute segments and then post them on every network, and it just takes a lot of time to do that. So uh, yeah, after I figured cool. out how, I should never talk over you, Peter. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm bad at it as well. I'm absolutely useless at uh, you know holding conversations with anyone, to be honest. But uh... Luckily, we've got Jake, and he's a great editor. Oh, fantastic. So he's just going to make us sound brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, if you just take out all the pieces of this that sound good and just, yeah, put them together, that would be fine. Thanks. Jake's nodding his head. He's giving us the thumbs up. Yeah, perfect. See, we're not in person, so I can see I don't have your physical cues, right? I guess that's true. I mean, you can do the whole video call thing, but I've always found it just not to be that good. Like, it either screws up your bandwidth and you end up turning the video off anyway, or it lags, or it's like the lip sync's wrong and you spend all your time concentrating on how the person's lips don't match what you're hearing. And like, (laughs) I don't know, it's just me, but... um, yeah, I, I actually do prefer it just being audio only, but as you say, you do lose some of the cues. That's okay, though. We can work through it. We're Peter, you and I, we're, we're pros. 
We're, we're consummate professionals. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've podcasted for a few years and have just not done it, like, for about, four, I don't know, three or four years now, partly because my co-host died, um, and I've just never got back onto the wagon. So this is all a good practice for me uh, starting to podcast again, actually. And then was your podcast based on one of your le- newsletters that was going out? Yeah, so there were two shows. There was a show called The Ruby Show, rather creatively, and another one called The JavaScript Show, rather creatively. And uh, they were actually, um, The Ruby Show was actually produced in collaboration with Dan Benjamin of 5x5 podcasting fame. Um, But he kind of didn't want to do it anymore. So the guy that hosted it with him uh, got me on board because, you know, I was well known in the Ruby space and still am, hopefully. And uh, we did the show for, you know, a few years like that. Um, you know, it just, uh, yeah, it, it, it was, it was a good time. Have you ever seen, uh, like mats come on your subscription list or something like that? No, although I'm not super fussy at like looking at who's subscribing to anything. Yeah. Um, but I have seen mats like retweet stuff, um, you know, or kind of like interact with things that have clearly come from us. So, uh, yeah, he, he's paying attention. He's looking at stuff. Yeah, you get pumped when that happens, right? Like you can't not be excited when the creator of something that you're using is like, oh, this is cool, reshare. It's quite nice. Um, it's weird. I, I'm I'm one of these people that doesn't actually get excited about very much. Um, it's just a, a part of who I am. I, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, that's neat. Like, that's cool. Move on to the next thing. Um, but I think that's actually why I do so many projects and why I constantly like jump from thing to thing. I'm always trying to find like the next thing that will have a, a good effect. And then I just kind of, get rid of the things that don't um and i think it's partly because i'm just never satisfied with anything like i'm just always looking for what is that next thing i'm actually going to be happy with well yeah that's what doer that's how it works when you climb when you're one of the people that are going to the top like you just that's how like my wife brings it up to me because she's like in your work you're never like you always want more and you're always like great like i'll celebrate for a second, you know, I'd be like, woohoo, like high five. And then, all right, now what are we doing? Cause I, I get excited by accomplishing items. So she's always like, uh, you're, you're still going to be interested in me in 30 years. And I'm like, absolutely. Like, don't worry about that at all. It's going to be great. Definitely. I mean, I remember, um, when I was, you know, growing up and I don't know, I just wasn't quite wide the same way growing up, but I would see people who perhaps achieved success or, you know, uh, you know, had made a few million dollars or whatever, like that type of level of success and think, oh, why don't you just like stop now and just kind of sit down and be like, yeah, I'm going to chill in Hawaii for the rest of my life or whatever. Um, and it's not until you kind of start climbing some of that ladder for yourself kind of as an adult um, that you kind of realize, oh, actually, like once you've achieved something and now I'm not, I don't have like millions of dollars in the bank. Um, that'd be nice one day. But I kind of almost get the feeling now that if I did and I was at that point, I wouldn't be thinking like I did when I was a teenager thinking, oh yeah, I'm just going to put my feet up. I want to kind of just keep doing more. And so I guess that's why you see these people like the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world, um, yep. you know, kind of just doubling down and being like, yeah, I'm going to like, you know, just share stuff and perhaps help other people. And But I'm not slowing down on like what they're grinding on. So yeah, it's really weird, but I can totally see how it's like an alien concept if you've not begun on that journey to, you know, what does that mean? Why would you want to keep working when you don't have to? Um, it's just, we end up just working on the things that we want to work on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I have a chapter in my book called people don't work for money. They work for momentum because like 
that's what I crave. Like I, I like the momentum of a project. I like building something. It's like the money, I more detach from the money and look at it more like fuel to get the ship from A to B. And I'm excited about the energy of the people watching the team grow and the people come on board and all the energy of like, we hit it, we hit a hundred, you know, or we hit 200, or we hit 300. Like I, I like, I like the, the climb of it. Like that's what's exciting to me. But when I was 16, I was Googling like pictures of Ferraris and I was like, oh, all I need is a hundred thousand dollars. Like, and I was like, I'm going to go live. I'm going to try to buy an island or like all these things so I could do nothing. And then the act of having to go get that money to do nothing instilled this new quality inside of me, like a new passion where I just like getting stuff done, making things happen and building teams and generating that momentum. Yeah, I'm definitely a bit of both. Um, I mean, I've, you know, growing up, there was always like, you know, the car I wanted or I wanted to have a, you know, a bigger house and stuff like that. And I've actually like, my, my, my requirements on those fronts are actually extremely modest compared to most. Um, so I've actually achieved the things that I want to in that regard. Um, I mean, I've still got a mortgage and, you know, stuff like that. But in terms of like the house, I mean, I'm totally happy with it. Like I don't want a bigger house. Um you know, and in terms of the car I've got, I've got the car of my dreams, essentially. So while I'm not like, you know, particularly rich by any stretch of the imagination, um, I've kind of managed to accomplish the kind of some of the material things that I want. And now it is more about the work. So I can definitely see it from both sides. You know, it is nice to have the things that you kind of desire in your life. But then, yeah, you kind of, once you've done that, you're like, oh, what now? Like, what's the next thing? So, uh, you know, accomplishments and work and things like that have definitely picked up a lot of the slack once you reach a baseline level of comfort, I think. Do you wake up early? No, not what, not at all. No, I, I am extremely bizarre when it comes to sleep schedules. Um, at the moment, I'm getting up around 11, 11.30, that kind of time. Um, and the reason for that is I sleep, um, sorry, I work incredibly well at night, like extremely well compared to the day. Like, 10x productivity essentially um, yeah I get very bogged down during the day so nighttime is good for me and I've got a, a three month old um, daughter as well and so I'm kind of looking after her at night and then feeding her and everything so that you know my wife can have a, a longer sleep um, and that works so well for me like it's just the, the perfect arrangement so no not an early bird at all but never have been oh man I have a five month old daughter oh cool what'd you name yours uh, grace grace I, I named mine Ari Cool. Yeah. So you know what it's like. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about right now. <laughs> and this is number three for me as well. So, you know, it's, uh, but they are all, all different, I find. This is number one for me. Oh, and that's even, even cooler. Yeah. So every, everything's like, you know, just yesterday or last week, she, for the first time, my wife was holding her and we're in the kitchen and she reached her hands out because she wanted me to hold her. Like, first time. <laughs> I was blown. I, it just felt so awesome. Cool. So did you watch the uh, rocket launch yesterday? Uh, no, in fact, I don't know why, but it just completely escaped my attention. Like, I want to know where some people like know about these things in advance. They must be like following the SpaceX account, like manically or something. So I discovered like after it had already gone up and everyone's like, oh, that was awesome. I'm like, oh, okay. I missed out on that. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I've got my nose too far into like the the industry that I'm in, the whole programming world and everything. I'm just constantly seeing what's happening there. And it's like, yeah, oh, you know, something's flying to Mars. Oh, you know, big deal. So uh, yeah, unfortunately, I missed out on it. But I saw the, you know, the, the playback of it, and it looked uh, kind of fun. Although the first thing I was thinking was, like, who's the poor guy, like, driving the 
can't. <laughs> um, and people are like, yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's just a just a dummy. But you know, I was um, I, I'm a fan, but like you said, the way I found out about it was through Jake and my wife. They're like, right. hey, did you did you know what's happening today? And then like it was pushed back and it was pushed back, and she's like sending me messages and Jake's sending me messages, and I'm like. All right, well, clearly I've set a reputation with the people around me that they can kind of watch out for that stuff for me. Yeah, I think it's interesting, actually, because there's a lot of people that take that attitude. Um, and I think we all have to in certain areas. Like, I can't constantly pay attention to everything in every sector of life that I'm interested in. But uh, my wife is the same with news. Like, she doesn't watch the news, listen to the news, actively consume any news whatsoever. And she just assumes that if something is serious... Uh, there's either going to be, you know, napalm raining from the skies or I'm going <laughs> to tell her. Like, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's not important in her life, um, you know, what's happening with politics and so on, um, which I guess is, you know, a, a position if you're in a position where you can take that is is, is a nice place to be. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm a little bit like that with some of these other newsworthy events. I just, uh, you know, can't keep up with everything. Does, she, does your wife have uh, like a lot of hobbies? Um, she has three children, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, this is definitely a decision that we took that she is very, very much a caring person, someone who likes children and wants to spend all her time with the children and doing things with the children. And that's just how it works. Uh, so that's what she does with the majority of her time, taking like dance shows and things like that. So, so they have hobbies and she's like having the hobbies with them. Yeah, kind of. It's like, you know, she's got the, the group of friends that she always wanted to have, like and that kind of comes through children, which I think is totally fine. Like we all have our you know, different things that help get us through life and that we enjoy doing. So uh, I think that's really nice. Yeah, my wife got into, so she has limited time, obviously, since this is our first child, but she was, she's, she's like a highly productive person. So she was going to work, like doing all these things. And then when we had the baby, like she just, we decided as a team that, you know, hashtag team Beasley, she's going to do these things. I'm going to do these things as part of the team play. And so one of those things is staying home with, Ari and she has like this four or five hour window that uh, where Ari is sleeping and she has enough energy to be awake (laughs) and she's took up uh, refurnishing furniture. Oh, cool. So there's actually a, almost a a slight business angle to some of that as well then. Yeah. I'm like, now you can, after she refurnished her house, I'm like, people kept asking her on Facebook and stuff to sell them. She hasn't gone all the way there right now she's redoing a table with six chairs and she's stripping down the chairs down to just the wood and then redoing the cushions and learning how to do the staples and she had to get like an air compressor stapler and like all this so she she just does her projects spends three two or three four hours a day on it when she has the those days that she can and it made our house look a lot cooler because before when people would come over, I'd be like, yeah, we bought that at that store and that at that store. But like now everything has the story behind it. Like the person we got it from and like all the issues that have, oh yeah, this one, she accidentally stapled her hand when she was making that chair. <laughs> yeah, you see that red stain on that chair? Well, yeah. you know, that's, that's the one. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah. So, so that's what she's up to. I saw that you were uh, in one of your Twitter posts that you, you a lot of public speaking about technology. Not at the moment. I, I used to um, quite frequently, but haven't in the last couple of years just just because of like, you know, lack of ability to travel easily because of, you know, so many kids. And um, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's changed a little bit in the last year or two. But, uh, you know, I have done, yeah. Yeah, so I saw you were 
or somebody tagged just what looked like you were talking. Maybe that was it, but something about uh, engaging student developers. Have you yes. had any experience with that? Um, well, yeah. So, well, it depends if you want to talk about the topic or the, the, the fact that I was talking. It was an event in London called DevRelCon, uh, which is actually mm-hmm. going international. I think it's going to be in San Francisco soon. It's in China. Um, and it's for people that kind of have relation, oh, say relationships, kind of like you know, professional relationships with software developers. So people within companies that have like APIs, for example, that they want to you know, get out to the world. And they'll, you know, interact with developers and show them how to get started. And here's some resources and here's tutorials and so on and so forth. They'll go and meet people, um, kind of like a, a support role almost. Um, and this is a conference just for those types of people, which is a natural fit for, you know, my business because I'm in the business of telling developers about things that are going on. So developer relations people often want to talk to us because they're like, well, you know, we've built this new API and it's really cool. Like, can you let the world know about it? Or can you share this tutorial that we've done or whatever? So I went along to that just because it was like the perfect fit conference for us. And I said to uh, the guy that runs the conference, you know, I'm more than happy to do some kind of interviews and things like that you know, during the lunchtime period with you know some of the speakers. And he's like, cool, just pick like the speakers and I'll ask them if they want to do it. And uh, one of those um, was the chap whose name has just completely gone out of my mind. Uh, Joe Nash, I think, um, from GitHub, who is someone that engages with their kind of student developers. Uh, so these are people that, uh, you know, GitHub are trying to like engage almost like the next generation of developers to, you know, get them into the fold and use their products and so on. And uh, he engages with those people and goes to events and, you know, hackathons and those types of things. Um, so I got to speak to him about that. And I mean, it's not something I knew anything about before the conversation. So uh, it's kind of neat speaking to him, almost like a, you know, podcast interview like this. So is that role, are they... Are they calling it like a developer evangelist or is that something different? I can't quite remember ex- what his exact uh, title is, but he was very much focused on students. Like, you know, a typical developer evangelist, I think, would cover like the whole gamut of customers potentially, whereas he was very much about engaging with groups of students. So um, I guess this is a luxury that GitHub get to have in that, you know, being a developer-oriented company that makes a lot of money, they get to hire people for very specific goals. I mean, I'm not aware of other companies that really focus on students in the way that they do. So uh, I'm not sure of his exact title, but yeah, he was very focused on the students. Yeah, we, we've we actually, so I, I have been doing this podcast for a little bit and we do the clips and some people from IBM's Internet of Things heard one of the clips where I was like joking about an ad that you could make and run at developers with this guy named Giannis from Polefish. And they heard that. And so they sent me out a message and like, oh, that was really creative. Um, do you have any other, you have any ideas for what we're doing with our product? And they sent right. me their product. And what I kind of realized was, you know, I, I've been writing code for, you know, 17 years, like a long time, just like you. And You've you've been doing it much longer, but uh, there we I don't get marketed too much. Like I don't get a lot of really cool. Like everything I see that I I do see is is like a boring white paper or something. I don't get a lot <laughs> of really cool. Like why is nobody making thirty second like videos of developers like with inside jokes and stuff? Like you know somebody not squashing a commit correctly. Or like like you know it's just something interesting and in, in making it unique. Like I don't see why they don't advertise to developers more. Why they don't market to developers more? Yeah, I mean you know a lot of companies feel like they have a, an image to maintain, and sometimes are a little bit sort of leery about doing things like that. You know they're like oh you know let's do X Y and Z, and then they're like oh actually you know we need to go and consult with our legal team or our branding team or 
whoever like to, to really nail this. We've encountered that before, even just doing um, you know newsletters for uh, clients. Like sometimes we do custom newsletters for people, and they're like, "Oh, we know we need to run all this stuff by you know the branding team or whatever," and like they need to get their message on point. So sometimes that kind of yeah, that let people just run loose with uh, stuff and kind of have fun approach doesn't always work. Um, I think one company that does do it quite well is Microsoft with their whole uh, Channel 9 thing. Um, they've you know started actually publishing their videos onto YouTube now, which is quite a big step for them. Uh, they've always been very keen to you know, own their own platforms for things. Uh, but they're now going on, going on to there. And I know people that uh, produce videos that have got a lot more um, kind of heart and soul to them. And I think Google also, um, you know, they give their developers quite a lot of resources to produce videos. Um, you may have seen, well, if people want to like Google, they're like Adi Osmani, for example. Um, he's been in numerous videos, like doing some of the Google dev tools type stuff and some of their front end development stuff. Uh, and he puts a lot of personality into it. But I, I mean, I totally agree. You know, I'm a massive fan of that style of engagement and kind of injecting humanity into things like one of my favorite podcasts of all time is the uh, bill burr podcast he's oh he's hilarious dude. exactly so you know if anyone doesn't know him he's a comedian and he you know his podcast is very popular gets hundreds of thousands of you know downloads each time so yes people want to advertise on there but the problem is like because he's a comedian he just is who he is. He doesn't like read the ad spots in like the way that the advertisers expect. <laughs> so he like just does songs about them, about like there's, you know, a company called like MeUndies or something that sells like underwear, like on a subscription plan. And he's singing like MeUndies, MeUndies, they're up my butt crack and like all this kind of stuff. <laughs> he's just got absolutely crazy. And he often loses sponsors because he like goes a bit too far with some of the jokes he cracks around it, but they need to be prepared for that. And I think as time's gone on, you know, his sponsors have actually realized, oh, hang on, this guy's getting us a lot of attention. You know, if we can cope with that, this is a really good investment. And it's a case with a lot of these tech companies is they need to work out, are they okay with maybe they're going to be on podcasts or videos and maybe they're not going to be presented exactly the way they want, but are they cool with that? And if they are, then yes, the rewards will come. Do you believe, all right, let's say hypothetical, running it by, running it by you. You got you to gotta start up. And they're building some sort of widget, maybe widget API or something like that. Should they go through multiple, you know, rounds of funding and then uh, build a product and then get a product? And then once they have, you know, a year and a half down the road, they have this product, they're ready to take to market. And then they start creating content around their product or should they create content from day one? This doesn't even apply just to developers or APIs. You should be, you know, working on content from day one. Like that is the, it's such an important part of the process because even if no one reads that initial content, it's going to act as a really good repository of information from the future. Like when you look back and be like, well, why did we make that decision? And why did we target that audience and those types of things? So it kind of, you know, acts as a historical document of what you've done. Um, but also, you know, engagement with that type of content only kind of gets better over time. Uh, it's good to have this repository of things from the past because it just really shows your history to people. And if someone comes along as a developer, like picking an API, um, so let's say, you know, I go along to like a, an email company, like, I don't know, let's say SendGrid or someone like that, um, or even MailChimp, whatever. I go and look at their website and I click on their blog and I'm like, oh, these, these guys seem kind of cool. Um, but then I'm like, oh, hang on, like their archives go back to like 2008 or whenever. And I go clicking around. I'm like, oh, yeah, they did this feature, this feature. And I'm like, this looks like 
they've got a really good long-term story. Like they've been doing this for years. It all makes sense. Um, and it makes them it makes them a better investment. You know, this is why people pick companies like Microsoft and IBM. You know, it isn't always because they have the coolest tech or the best tech. It's because they have the best long-term story and, you know, kind of the whole you don't get fired for buying IBM uh, kind of mantra that uh, goes around in some, you know, sort of CTO circles. It is true. Like, it's good to have this long-term story. So I think, you know, get content out there straight away, even if it's literally just documenting the process that you're going through in building your product. People are fine with the warts. What people aren't fine with is going to a site and being like, oh, yeah, we've got this amazing technology, but we're not going to tell you anything about ourselves or any of our history. Or it looks like we could have thrown this site up overnight. Like people like to see stories. That's just a human, you know, human nature thing. Thank you. <laughs> have I just sold your book for you? No, no, that's not what my book's about. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, no, no, I'm having these conversations because, all right. So I've never been like, I've always had marketing people like let them when I had startups or I'll call them businesses. When I had businesses that made money, um, I would have people in charge of content. They would make content. It'd be great. But when I started this podcast and this book, the only person that could do the content was me. I mean, I'm the author of the book, right? So I had to do the content. I had to put the content on the website, think about the title, you know, construct the whole machine. And so I do this and I put it out there and it's like, great. And then I can, I'm a consistent person with the thing that I'm really passionate about. So I keep putting content, I keep putting content and go down this whole path. And then I start seeing like, you know, after a couple months, like just ridiculous amounts of traffic because it's answering people's questions. It's coming in. They're they're learning about the show. Like I'm building this, this huge audience all be just because I was putting the content out there. So all of a sudden I'm like, you have to put content out like immediately like right away. And then you have to continuously put out, like you, you don't just say, oh, content's a good idea. I'm going to go write a blog post how to on how to use the API. And like, that's it. Like you check that off for like your lifetime of your company. Okay, content check. Like you have to, you have to answer, constantly be figuring out what questions people are asking, answering the questions through content, putting out, you know, positive propaganda <laughs> on what you're doing, explaining what you're doing, explaining why you're doing it, giving like updates at the company. Oh, this week we are Jackie or like Jake, you know, screwed up. Jake never screws up. But uh, <laughs> like you have to like make it human. You have to have lots of content because when like we're developers, when I go choose an API, like if I'm going to go integrate like Drift or Intercom or, or some new technology like natural language processing yeah. API or something, if I've got three options and one of them is has really great, pretty documentation with an active blog and lots of content on how to use their system and they're a little bit more, it doesn't matter. I'm going to go with the one that looks alive, that looks like it's doing something. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what MailChimp did. And I don't know if you've ever spoken yeah. to any of the, the people there, but uh, you know they're a fascinating group of people and they really doubled down on that whole like, oh, you know, we've got the monkey mascot and, you know, we're a group of cool people and we're doing all these things and we're very colorful and, you know, we've got great documentation. And there was just like a lot of heart behind it. And, you know, I'd be interested to hear like their full story one day, like in a very candid way. But uh, it seems to have really worked for them because I know back when they were just one of a number of players in the same space, uh, you know, I just saw people gravitating towards them. And I think that has a massive um, influence. Are you a fan of Stripe? Have you ever integrated yeah. with Stripe? All yeah. Right. So 
those brothers are awesome. I like I found out about Stripe like right when it first came out, and before that, I was using some hack up of authorized.net, right? Because mm. it was a big pain. And then I found Stripe, and I was like, this is beautiful. And I convinced the person who's running the project, the business side of things, like we got to switch to Stripe because it's way easier. They're like, all right, cool. If it makes you happy, I'm like, great. And then from then on, I've probably put ten clients on Stripe because yeah. I have the Ruby integration that I wrote, and I know how it works and everything, you know. So I realized the other day when I was having a conversation with um, the, have you heard of Drift? They're like a competitor to Intercom. They got this AI chat thing. It's really smart, but uh, they're growing really fast. They've went from 20 to 110 people this year. Um, it's like Drift.com. But I was in Tampa, Florida, hmm. and I was talking with their CTO. We were like in the behind the scenes speaker area at this event. And we were talking about how when developers know and love a tool and it solves the problem, like, all right, I learned about Stripe. That's like my payment, my preferred payment method solution. I'm going to actually like fight to use Stripe. Like I'm going to push back on, like I'm going to suggest it to my clients if they want to use something else. And I'm going to sell them on the benefits of using Stripe because I want to use Stripe. Right. And it was at that moment when we were having that conversation that I realized that developers influence business decisions based on the tools that they know and love. And so if you're a company and you've got a tool, you need to put out content and engage the community so that your tool becomes something many developers know and love. So when the opportunity arises, they'll integrate it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've seen this so many times and I think this is why the whole developer relations concept is, you know, continuing to grow and continuing to be popular because that just seems to happen, you know, whether it's, you know, it can be on really, really big things as well. You know, Stripe is obviously quite a big deal, but if you look at even bigger things like Amazon Web Services, you know, the way that they constantly, you know, offering things to developers and, you know, they have that whole free tier thing. I'm sure that's, you know, had a massive effect and a massive like level of growth um, you know, in terms of their overall revenue, give stuff away for free and then bam, like people are like, oh, we're using AWS now. And, you know, <laughs> certain people in the company will be like, well, fine, do what you want. Like, we don't understand the tech, use whatever it is that works, you know, for the company. Um, and bam, they're in the door. So yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, because Peter, when I can sit at home and on my side project, just boot up a quick AWS and get some free credit, well, all of a sudden I just learned how to use AWS. Yeah. Right. So now when the option presents itself at work and it and it's obviously your product has to be good and not suck. That's like a that's a that's an important attribute to the whole system working. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But after, yeah. After you have a good product, then you have to go continuously tell the world about it. Yeah. And I think this, we've seen the same with even like companies like Apple, for example. You know, you don't think of Apple as being like a, you know, developer company as such, but you know, sort of about 2004, kind of onwards for a few years there, like their products became really, really popular with developers. And I think that actually was like ahead of the curve of, you know, the, the kind of the regrowth of the Mac as a, a, as a platform um, that, you know, sort of occurred about 10 years ago. And I think developers were actually a key part of that. People may disagree, you know, maybe there is some data out there that disproves my thinking on this, but I'm just sure that that initial growth really made a difference. You know, we got to this point, like, uh, you know, several years back where like you would go to a developer conference and there would just be a sea of like illuminated Apple logos everywhere. Um, yeah. It's somewhat changing now. And this is one of the things where the whole um, Satya Nadella kind of reworking of Microsoft has had such a great impact um, is that they really are going heavy after developers. And I think they might be kind of trying to 
you know, go from the same playbook. It's like win over the developers and then the developers are like, you know, recommending it to their friends or whatever. It's getting used in the offices and, you know, they're doing the tech support in the office and all this type of stuff. And it's just spreading out now. Now you're seeing a lot more kind of, you know, Microsoft Surface books and all those types of things cropping up at events um, in places where you never would have expected it like 10 years ago. So, um, yeah, I, I'm totally on board with the whole sort of developer first strategy for, you know, even consumer level businesses because it just seems to work. Like where developers go, other people tend to follow. We've seen that not just with tech, we see it with, um, you know, even social networking and the internet generally and stuff like that. Um, I was just saying to someone the other day that like the things that teenagers do now, like I was kind of doing the same things, but because I was a geek, like, so in the nineties I was on like, you know, IRC and, uh, you know, just screwing around on the internet and being in Usenet, you know, Usenet groups and, you know, live chatting to people and all this type of thing. And at the time, it's considered to be a little bit kind of weird and sort of antisocial and a bit out there. Like, it's like you wouldn't, you know, harp on about too much in public because people think, oh, he's a bit weird. Um, I mean, that would be correct. But, uh, you know, nowadays, that's almost normal, like for a 13 year old to like go and like, you know, talk to people online and stuff like that. You look at that from the 90s perspective, it's like we've all gone crazy. But um, yeah, so it's what developers do often becomes normalized, I, I've noticed. Um, and I don't know if that's going to continue, but I can't see why not. Did you see what Apple did putting the programming tools on the tablets? Yeah, the whole playgrounds thing as well. Is that what it's called? I think they called it that. Yeah, it's like some uh, something they introduced about just over a year ago, where it's like you can develop software and they teach you Swift like directly on the on the tablet. Yeah, I think I like so I go around and experience life like a normal human, <laughs> and <laughs> out in public, like I've got nephews and nieces, and they always like I never see an adult using a tablet. It's I always see the kids using tablets. Like they'll have the little tablet that they got for whatever reason, and then they'll give it to the kid to keep them busy when they're out eating or something like that. And I wondered to myself, I was like, did Apple, did some, some person at Apple see this happening and was like, we got to put our developer playground tools on the tablet so that, that all these kids can learn it from day one. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not personally convinced that's going to work. Um, but that's more of a personal opinion. I'm, I'm a little bit kind of, I'm actually a little bit bearish on, people actually becoming developers at the moment. You know, there's an increasing number of resources and things out there, but the whole ecosystem is so fragmented and complex that I think it kind of naturally scares some people away. Now, you know, we see coding schools and things like that, but I don't know, it just the whole scene of like learning programming at the moment seems so messy and fragmented that, yeah, I'm a little bit worried like where it's going to be headed, um, you know, over the next decade or two. I think it's a little backwards. Mm. I think... It's like everyone saw the programmers start to make money and like be not popular and go to popular. So then just like doctors and lawyers, all the parents like be a programmer. And everyone's like, oh, I got to go learn how to program, learn how to program. It's and I think that the next generation is going to be more niche. Like, oh, I love robotics, like the animation of robotics or the motion of robotics. So like learning, like I, I, lo- I fell in love with that concept or that idea of having uh, a robot run as fluid as a human. So then programming was one of the many things that they learned along with physics and all this other stuff that was a piece of that pie rather than just, cause if you're going to learn to programming and like I learned cause I was playing around doing something I liked, I learned around something I liked how to 
write the code, right? So if you're just going to learn it, just to learn it as like a skill to repeat, it's different than if you're like in love with it. Oh, absolutely. I'm very, very um, bullish, in fact, on the idea of programming growing by virtue of it being a process that you go through in regards to what your overall actual goal is. So for example, I think programming as a tool for like doing data analysis at scale, for example, is very important for doing automation, like at scale is important, but then that's important within the subject you're already doing. So whether that's like, you know, English literature and you're doing analysis of every single Shakespeare play as to like what words he used the most, or, you know, you're a doctor and you're doing analysis on DNA or some kind of, you know, bioinformatics type stuff. Um, I think it's absolutely key for programming to be involved in those disciplines at the kind of the formal education level. And I don't think we see quite enough of that nowadays. We see um, journalists uh, journalists in particular are starting to pick up um, on, you know, doing data journalism, as they call it, where, you know, they can analyze, you know, public records and things like that uh, at scale to produce like their graphs and various things of that nature. But I think we really need to see it start being baked in at, you know, high school, college, university level. Um, and I don't think we see enough of that yet, but there's going to be so much growth there. And once people start doing it, then they'll be programming kind of almost without thinking, oh yeah, I've had to go out and learn to program. It's kind of, this is just a function of being a productive uh, person who can automate, you know, sort of data analysis at scale, essentially. Oh, Peter, talking to you is awesome, man. <laughs> it's like, we're going to, if you're in the United States in the future, after your kids grow up, maybe we'll, we'll meet in like a decade. I play long-term games, so it's cool. Like next time you're in the United States, we'll figure it out. And I'm going to come, come meet you and be like, what up? We're going to high five and have a five minute conversation. That'll be enough. Well, you're in Florida, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, well, obviously, you know, probably within the next five years, I would imagine the one reason I would have to go to Florida would be Disney World, wouldn't it? So, you know, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to end up in Florida at some point. Oh, Disney World's awesome. We're like an hour from it. Oh, man, I can't cope with those places, but I just, I have, I get kind of taken along and have to kind of deal with it. And I think if if you are going to go to a theme park, Disney is probably the best one to tolerate if you're not a theme park person, because they, they do make it kind of more accessible than some of them, so... Well, I have problems with crowds and standing in lines. Exactly. Same so, here. <laughs> I, I default to it's awesome when when eighty percent of the world's like pro Disney. You know, it's like yeah. the idea is it's very cool if there's no one there. Like if there's like eight people at Disney World, it's amazing. I'm sure. Yeah, I, I guess I just have to save my pennies up and get one of those like VIP kind of people that just like lead you around. Oh yeah, there's a, there's this thing called the Underground Tour. It takes the whole day. Yeah, there you go. It's like Disney's built up like eight to 10 feet or whatever, like above the ground, like the whole theme park. So like under it's all the animators and like all the people working on Disney. Yeah, I've heard about that. I've got a friend who's uh, absolutely obsessed with Disney, like land and Disney World, all the different Disneys. He goes every two or three months um, because, yeah, it's just his passion. So, yeah, he's been on all these kinds of crazy tours and tells me stuff about them. They even have like a club at um, each Disneyland where you have to pay something like something like twenty or thirty thousand dollars to become a member and then they let you into like this really weird like old school kind of like environment where it's just like really rich people hanging out going yeah we love disney world like i don't know i can't really get on board with that but uh it's kind of fun just hearing like the some of the stories and the mythology around it it's uh you know taking on a life of its own yeah it's just to me it sounds incredibly inconvenient to pay like a club membership fee to a place where you have to like 
drive to it just sounds uh, like it's not my thing yeah I'll be, i'm just happy with having a gym and a swimming pool like that's that's the only membership i need I'm, and then i'm happy so i want to know probably the most cliche like question that you get i want i want the cooper press story like what what did you write how did it get started what was your first letter like how did it come about all that good stuff okay so let me think where i can conveniently start from um it'll probably be when i was just getting into blogging. So I got into blogging really early on. Um, before it was even called blogging, actually, I was uh, running a, my own personal site in uh, about sort of 99, somewhere around then, um, and doing kind of frequent updates. Yeah, it was a sub-scene um, on the internet called Everything and Nothing, E slash N. Um, there's only a handful mm-hmm. of people that seem to remember it now, but uh, it was basically a lot of very young, nearly all male kind of sort of teenagers essentially would just post absolute trash online, like the sort of stuff you get now with the memes on Facebook and everything. It was just absolute mess. Photoshop jobs, the works. Um, And I just kind of saw the power of that whole frequent publishing thing. Like even if you were publishing just to a bunch of other spotty teenagers, like it was kind of fun just to get something out there and have a response. So that's always just something that's always clicked with me. I've always liked doing that. So I kept on doing it, kept on doing it. It was just all absolute trash. I wasn't going to get paid for it or anything like that. But then the whole blogging kind of thing took off. And there were lots of people out there uh, talking about if you blog about your business, then that can be a way of building up a story and building up you know, a user base and all this type of thing for your various products or whatever it is that you've got. So I've always been interested in programming and I've, I've been doing it professionally on and off for, for a long, long time. And I was blogging about my work with the Ruby programming language. So just the various things I'd built, the stuff I was doing in Rails, that type of thing, really early on, like 2004, 2005. And I had a acquisitions editor, at a publisher called A-Press, reach out to me and say, we want someone to write a Ruby book. You've been blogging about it for a while. Like, you know, it seems kind of fun what you're writing. So would you be interested in writing a book about uh, Rails? Because Rails is, you know, becoming a big thing. And mm-hmm. I said, no, um, I'm, you know, I'm just not, I'm not really that interested in writing about Rails, but if I can write about Ruby, like the actual programming language, I'll be a lot more interested. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. Like anything. Um, so I'm like, great. So let's write uh, an introductory book to Ruby so people can learn how to you know, develop with it. They're like, great, let's plan it all out. So we planned it all out. Um, and long story short, you know, wrote the book and I thought, hang on, I need to promote this book somehow. So what's the best way of doing that? Let's start a blog. So I began a blog called Ruby Inside, which is still around. It's kind of dead now, but uh, it's still online. And I just started posting stuff about, here's this new Ruby thing, or this you know piece of news is occurring. And it suddenly, you know, it got a lot of following very quickly because there weren't a lot of people doing blogging with programming stuff at the time, um, especially not in a kind of a daily newsy type style. It wasn't the done thing. So um, I built that up and actually the blog was a lot more successful than the book, which, you know, did okay, but, you know, it's uh, it wasn't, you know, like the number one Ruby book by any stretch of the imagination. And I started to get sponsors. They they came out the work. They were like, oh, you know, we want to reach these people, these Ruby developers. You know, can we pay you a certain amount and put a graphic on the sidebar? I'm like, yeah, great. Um, and so there's no plan to this. This just all kind of organically occurred. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, it just kind of went from there. So I just built that up, built that up, built that up, had sponsorships and so on. And in the background of all of this, I had started a company that took RSS feeds and allowed you to like re-syndicate and reprocess them. So you could take an RSS feed from 
you know, a new service or even 10 different new services, filter it down to like certain keywords and things, and then like embed it on the side of your blog. It was that type of service. And cool. um, I sold that to a Russian company in 2007 for a, I would say a life-changing amount of money, but actually a very small amount of money, a six-figure sum. Um, but for me, that gave me kind of a runway just to focus on just messing around with the things that I wanted to do. You know, I was single. I was, freedom. Yeah, freedom, essentially, yeah. you know. Um, so, you know, that, that, count, that was a really good time because I was messing around with the blog and just wanted to keep doing the blog. So I now had this sort of, you know, uh, you know, a couple of years worth of money in the bank, essentially, to keep me ticking over and just focus on that. And it eventually built up and it became an income of its own right. Um, but then I kind of saw that email was becoming very popular. Uh, lots of people were talking about, oh, Groupon, you know, they're using email for everything. That's kind of a novel idea of like sending notifications out via email all the time. Like, because it just wasn't done then. Like email was not a massive thing in the sort of late 2000s in particular. It, it really kind of died off as a uh, broadcast medium. It was more just for your one-to-ones. Um, so. I thought, well, this looks interesting. Like the engagement looks kind of interesting. So let's try and do what I'm doing with the blog, but doing an email. So I'll link to the most interesting Ruby stuff in this email each week. I launched it. I mentioned it on the blog that I was running. So I already had that audience and mm -hmm. a couple of thousand of them signed up like straight away. So I was like, this is kind of interesting. So I started posting week after week and I noticed the engagement was really high. People clicking on the links and so on. And I thought I could use this to sell training. So I was I was doing online training as well at the time where I would charge uh, sort of 20 to 30 people uh, about four or $500. And they would come on with me like on a webinar type environment for a couple of days. And we would literally go through so like tiny details about how Ruby worked and stuff like that. And um, so I could make, you know, $10,000, $12,000 a go doing that. And I thought all I need to do is just sell that out every single month, just do one of those courses a month. And bam, like I've got an income like, you know, happy days. The yeah. only problem was, um, it turns out I'm probably not, I'm, an okay, I'm okay at teaching, but I'm always dissatisfied with how I'm doing it. So every time I gave the course, I kept rewriting the whole thing and being like, I want to make it a bit better. I want to make it a bit better. And it ended up taking up so much time that I was just like, I can't keep doing this. Um, and I had people coming out the woodwork again, sponsors saying, oh, we want to get in front of all these Ruby developers that seem to be clicking all your links. Um, and I was like, oh, it's just easier for me to sell some advertising for now until I figure out what I want to do. So I started selling the advertising, but then it took on a life of its own and became the thing. Um, and I thought, well, let's just start making more newsletters and see whether I can scale this idea up. So I launched JavaScript Weekly um, quite soon after Ruby Weekly, and that just took off really quickly because a lot of it kind of coincided with a time in the JavaScript world where it was very much in transition from JavaScript just being a silly kind of little language that you just use to automate or change like things on forms on your web page to actually becoming a fully fledged language with its own ecosystem and libraries and things like that. Like libraries were such a new concept really in the JavaScript world at the time. Um, so people were very interested to learn about this growth and you know where JavaScript was going to go. So they signed up. Um, and I just branched out, um, you know, as time went by into other topics like front end development and mobile development and all these types of things. And now, sort of six, seven years after I launched Ruby Weekly, we now have um, 10, 11 sort of different publications with uh, almost 400,000 subscribers. And we're still going along those lines of sponsorships and job listings and things like that as the, uh, the way they make money. I never went back to doing the training or my own publishing as such. It's, it's really about 
you know, signal boosting for everyone else, but it seems to work. And that's kind of the story. That's where we're at now. That's amazing. So I've been following it for about, I think five, five, what's this year? 2018? Yeah. Like 2012, around 12, 13, yeah. 12, 13, I started. Yeah. Early-ish. It's just, I love it. I, I, I'll tell you what, I think I've unsubscribed from like every other thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> but that one I love, even though I'm not writing Ruby every day today, uh, I, I still have projects and I still air traffic controller get uh, pull requests and stuff like that for Ruby, but I'm not eight hours a day writing it. But I love to see what's going on. Like I like to see it. Yeah, I mean, we make it skimmable. So the problem is yep. we do get a lot of readers. They're like, oh, there's too many links or, you know, I need to catch up with all the issues that you've sent me and I just haven't had time. And I'm like, you don't need to catch up. Like you just literally look at an issue, just skim for it for like 10 seconds and delete it. Like if that's all you need to, to feel like you're keeping up to date, that's fine. But some people are very kind of completionist about it. They're like, oh, I must read every single link type thing. Um, but if you can, like you are doing, you know, just kind of have a skim through, be like, oh, this is interesting. This is what's going on. Uh, I think that is the perfect use for them. Yeah, I that's what I exactly what I do. I skim through and say, oh, look, there's someone that has t- taken a new approach to solving this problem. Like, that's yeah. kind of cool. And it's just, you can get it. In, so you guys do a great job of articulating in a very short way exactly what the value is of the product or service, whatever. That's exactly it. That is literally all we do. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're awesome at it. I've got one one final question for you. Sure. Um, Elon Musk calls you up. He says, I'm very disappointed, Peter, that you missed the launch. It was very important to me. But nonetheless, I want you to come over to my house and uh, I've got a time machine for you and you're going to jump in this time machine. You're going to go back 10 years and talk to your previous self for a few minutes, what advice would you give your previous self 10 years ago? Oh man, I'm terrible at questions like this. Um, That's great. (laughs) That's great for the show. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the things is I probably wouldn't be quite so hung up on making sure that I kind of have a physical foundation for my business. And what I mean by that is at the time I considered it to be much more important that, you know, I had kind of boots on the ground and, you know, people around me and stuff like that. And while it has been valuable and um, I don't fully regret that decision, I now see that, you know, some of the remote working stuff that's, you know, espoused by people like, you know, like the base camp guys, like, you know, David Heimer, Hanson, Jason Fried and so on. There is a lot of merit to that. If you can work in that way, there is a lot of benefit in that, you know, you can, hire, you know, people around the world, people can choose to live where they want to live or, you know, things of that nature. Um, and just the asynchronous nature of working, I, I'm being a night owl, I, you know, it's very good for me to work in an asynchronous way and working remotely kind of forces that style of work upon you. So if you've, you know, you're working with people that are used to working through the day, like I am, and they're kind of in, you know, your, your location, you kind of do have to fit in with them a little bit, um, you know, because otherwise it's just a bit rude. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you've got more people remote, you can kind of have that asynchronous nature. Now, it's not the world's best advice I'd send back to myself. It's more just a thing that I've realized it's taken years to figure out. Um, but, you know, if a more broader thing that maybe I would tell myself is just um, don't always worry quite so much about the details and like the feeling of something all the time and just it's just better to like keep launching stuff and then just kill off the things quickly that just don't work and double down on the things that do you know that's something that I now take on board quite strongly but at one time I would have been a little bit more like oh you know I'm not sure if I should be doing 
X, Y, and Z because I don't think it's going to work. Like maybe just give it a go, like in the simplest form and throw it out there and then just see what happens to it. Like you need to just keep, um, I don't know if you have the explicit tag, but throwing poo to the wall, let's say, um, <laughs> and just see what sticks. Like that is something I would really double down on if I could you know, do it all again. I think I would have moved a lot more quickly if I'd done that. Yeah, you're describing science. I mean, all you can really do is come up with 10 ideas, try them out, take the three best performing ideas, create variations on them and move forward. Yeah, but it's not natural for everyone. Uh, you know, sometimes it takes going through that process to realize the value in it. You know, I, we, one of my first employees who's no longer with us um, was a graphic designer and she was a fantastic graphic designer, but she was very much of like, well, I'm going to sit down and work on this project and it's going to be like kind of perfect, almost like in the first incarnation. And I had to keep like being like, no, just like keep producing like crazy stuff. Like put the text upside down, change the colors. I have like colors that don't even work together. Just anything that kind of gets those uh, creative ideas flowing. And then we'll see, oh, this one works, that one works, or this element of this one will bring it together. Um, that's kind of how you get on when you're in a, a creative kind of profession like that. You can't just always expect to work in a methodical way to a perfect outcome. So yeah, I would definitely advise myself to just really be even more kind of wacky and off the wall in terms of just trying out random things. Because, you know, you look at a lot of the technology and a lot of the things and websites and podcasts and things that are popular today, like on paper, they shouldn't work at all. Like they, <laughs> they, people just threw something out there, you know, a gust of wind caught underneath it like a, you know, like a paper airplane and it's gone flying. Like you just need to keep throwing more paper airplanes in the sky and just see which ones actually go anywhere. Um, that is how random life is. Yeah, that's how it, the podcast started from the book. And then I was bringing everyone in to make sure that I wasn't an idiot, that the stuff I was covering in the book would not get me flamed, yeah. right? And then those conversations turned into the idea of recording them and then into a podcast. And I just keep, at, like, I'm very accessible. So people comment, they send me emails, and it's getting to the point where now I have to have more of a team to help me with it. But I'm very accessible in that sense. And I'm always interested in what people want to know. Like, I don't, like this show is made for the people that listen to it, right? Like I want to make content that they want. So I've just been kind of going with the flow of things, just riding the wave. And then obviously I have an ex extraordinary like work, work ethic and a great team that helps me do it all. But yeah, it just kind of happened. Absolutely. And actually you just reminded me of two other things I would probably tell the 10 year younger self. Um, yes. one is just be, be more personable. Like I've always been a little bit detached and you'll see this with some of the, the newsletters. It's like, I take a very, um, not dry view necessarily, but a very like matter of fact view, like, Oh, here's something that's becoming popular. This is why let's move on to the next thing. Whereas certain people in the same position would write a newsletter that kind of rambles on in like paragraphs and paragraphs about how such and such a thing is terrible. And, you know, oh, don't use this, use this, like be more kind of opinionated and show a bit more personality and, I think there is a balance between those two extremes. And I'm now with some of our newer newsletters we're producing, we're actually trying to introduce, uh, introduce more content into them so we can be a bit more opinionated. So that's something I would have done earlier on to kind of build up a personality a bit more. And so people kind of see, oh, what's Crazy Pete kind of going on about this week? Like, it would be nice to have a bit more of that going on. Um, and secondly, it would be just like really start podcasting. So 10 years ago, I mean, podcasting was actually popular within certain circles 10 years ago. But if you'd begun, uh, you know, well, any show that's popular, <laughs> like if you'd started doing that type of thing 10 years ago, you now have 10 years of archives in your pocket and you'd be huge. So 
Um, it would probably be do that. And I think, as you've probably discovered, podcasting is a really good way of networking if like, you're not in a position to perhaps meet everyone very often. If you can't get to New York or San Francisco and attend all the different meetups and everything, uh, having a podcast and having people on and talking to them like you're talking to me now, you know, my memories of you are going to be a lot more favorable now than just some random like Twitter interaction we've had and vice versa. You're going to, you know, you're going to think of me. And if like something comes up, like let's say in a week's time, you're talking to someone, they're like, oh, you know, I'm trying to get into the email newsletter business or, you know, I'm buying email newsletter companies, uh, God forbid. Um, You're going to be, oh, I know this guy. Like, and I think that's what podcasting allows you to do kind of remotely almost. It's like going to conferences and like being a, a pro networker, but from your own house or wherever it is you are. So um, I'm sure you you would have a lot more to say on that topic, but it's something that I've just noticed and would definitely have told myself 10 years ago. Exactly. So like, I didn't want the conversations about the book to end. So I was, I was, people were referring to me, oh, you got, I talked to, you know, Derek about, it. he's like, oh, you got to talk to Mike. And then Mike's like, oh, you got to talk to Andrew. It's like, I started meeting these other CTOs and other, and, and they had these, we, we talked about the book for five minutes and they had these really cool stories. And I'm like, this is, this is, I didn't want it to be over. I was like, so now I need, where's the excuse? Like we need to do the podcast so that I can keep it going because personal, like as a human, I mean, I'm a, I'm like a geek dude. Like talking to Peter Cooper was awesome. Like I woke up this morning, I was telling Jake and the team, I was like, guys, today's an awesome day, man. We could talk to Peter <laughs> Cooper. I've been reading his, his uh, emails for four or five years now coming through. And you know what? It would, it would be really cool too if you injected some sort of like uh, personal like commentary like as a sentence or two at the top of the email like you know this week uh, nancy knocked over the tea kettle at the office hashtag like bad nancy you know nancy like, would that never way, do that nancy would never do that no. don't feel bad about nancy i'm not having it i'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> yeah but thank you thank you so much peter for coming on talking with us yeah no it's been great Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.